I invite you to join with me in the book of 2 Samuel as we look together at chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. 11, verses 1 to 13. Here in this chapter, we see probably the best known story in all of 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba the best-known story. And it's probably the best-known story because it's a juicy story. It is the quintessential story of scandal and adultery. And it's received a great deal of attention over the centuries. But so often that attention has treated the story as a moralistic tale, a story of what not to do. And it's just left it at that level. Don't be like David. Don't fall into this trap as David did. And while that's certainly true, and we certainly do want to avoid this trap, we need to read this story on a deeper level. And when we do that, we see that this is in fact a scary story. It's a scary text. Because it puts before us a scary thought that if this can happen to King David, then this can happen to you and to me. And the reason that this can happen to you and to me is because the delusions and the deception that are present in David's heart and his bondage to his desires. All those dynamics are at work in your heart right now and in my heart right now. And we don't like to admit that. And because we are sinful, fallen creatures, we are self-deceived. We are so deceived, in fact, that we just don't even have any idea how deceived we are until the light of God's truth The light of God's word shines into the darkest recesses of our hearts. And so I pray that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would do that very work in your heart and in my heart as we look together at this scripture. And instead of sitting in judgment on David and saying, how could he do this? See yourself in David. See yourself in David. Don't sit in judgment over him. See yourself and be warned. And it is only when we have taken that step to see ourselves in David, to see the same dynamics in our hearts as we see in David's heart, that we're ready to hear the good news. And there is tremendous good news for those with ears to hear it. And that good news is this. Only the Holy Spirit can free your heart from its delusions of self-control and from its bondage, its bondage of selfish desires. Its bondage to selfish desires. We are all self-deluded. We are all in bondage to our selfish desires. But God, and only God, 
can rescue us and can deliver us as he did David. So let's read together, beginning at verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Pausing there. Let's notice that this is a watershed moment in the book of 2 Samuel. Up until this point, the characterization of David has been of someone whose heart reflects God's heart. We have seen his courage in facing the enemies of God's people. We have seen his faith and his trust in God, his dependence upon God. We've seen how he reflects the kindness of God, even to people who otherwise would have been his enemies. And in view of his obedience, in view of his dependence on God, God has rescued him from one enemy after another. And at this point, David has peace all around him. But there's still a danger. There's the danger within. The danger within. Apparently, it happened that the Ammonites became a problem again. When there was peace at the end of chapter 10, apparently the season changed and the time of war ended and they needed to go to war against the Ammonites again. Only this time, David stays in Jerusalem. Now, some have read this and said, well, here's the problem. David was idle, and that's why he fell into this scandal. He was idle, and idleness is the devil's workshop, right? Well, that's true. That is true, but I don't think that's the emphasis in these verses. And the reason I don't think that's the emphasis is because it's not unusual for David to not go out with Joab and the army. We've seen him do this in the previous two chapters, where he sends the men out. It's not necessary for David at this time to lead Israel's armies on the battlefield. He is now established in Jerusalem, and so he can send Joab out. The emphasis is not on David's idleness. The emphasis instead is on David's false security. David's false security. Because while he thinks his primary enemy remains the Ammonites, and while he thinks that He's taking care of them by sending Joab and the army to fight them. In fact, David's greatest enemy and your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is in, inside of us. It's our own hearts. The danger within. And what you need to know today is that 
in spite of all the noise out there, and there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of anxiety, everyone is on edge, everyone is amped up, there's so much that is in turmoil in our nation, and we're feeling that inside of us. While those things matter, and while it's good to pay attention to them and to take part as we can, never forget that your main enemy is nothing out there. <laughs> it's in here. It's in your own fallen, sinful, and self-deceived heart. And that is where David was most vulnerable. A false sense of security. He goes out on the roof of his house. Most Israelite houses at that time had a flat roof, and this is a place where many people would go to relax. It was kind of like a living room in days before air conditioning. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And that woman happened to be very beautiful. And so he makes an inquiry regarding her. He says, who is she? I want to know. Notice that all David had to do at this point is look away. <laughs> all he had to do was just look away. But he gives in to what his heart is telling him, his fallen and deceived heart. Oh, I want to take another look. I want to know more. I want to pursue that because it looks good to me. And it's the same error that human beings have been falling into since the very beginning. We see what looks good to us, and so we go after it. We take it. Never mind what God has said. Never mind that God always has our best interests at heart. Never mind that God defines what is good and what is right. We think, well, it looks good to me, so I should take it, right? What could possibly, possibly be wrong with that? And we see how inside of us we have this ability, a fallen sinful ability, to manipulate and to distort God's good gifts. And in this case, it's the gift of sex and sexual attraction. That's not our idea. God designed us as sexual beings. We're going to have sexual feelings. We're going to feel attraction. And God has provided an outlet for that, and that outlet is a covenant relationship, marriage between one man and one woman for life. And it is good, and it is holy, and it is it is for your good to be enjoyed as a good gift from God. Oh, but we think we can improve on what God has given. Foolishly, we think that. And so, we are, as the Holy Spirit diagnoses us in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. David is failing to worship his Creator. 
He's worshiping the creation here. He's giving his heart, he's giving his affection, his love, his attention to the creation. Never mind what the creator has said about it. Never mind that that the creator has put guardrails around this. He thinks it looks good, so I'm going to take it. I want it, so I'll take it. The danger within. We are so vulnerable to this because we think, well, we're good inside, right? And we want to have an optimistic outlook about humanity. People are basically good at heart, right? Sure, there's some bad apples out there, but most people are basically good. But the Lord Jesus came and he shows us that's simply not true. We think it's true, and in our self-deceived way of living and thinking, we think it's true, but it's not. And here's why. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 15, verse 19, For out of the heart, out of your heart and my heart, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, Sexual immorality, literally porneia, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. It's not outside of you. It's inside of you that these characteristics come, these sins, sinful patterns of thought, sinful ways of living. Don't look around. Look inside yourself. Be honest with yourself. You can't hide from God. You can't keep this from God. The way David is thinking, the way he is looking at Bathsheba, this is how we think. No, this may not be your particular temptation. But this tendency to distort God's good gifts, well, that's lurking inside of you, no matter who you are. Just by virtue of being a son or a daughter of Adam and Eve. And you'll remember what else Jesus taught about this in Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is saying it's not good enough to say, oh, I've never committed adultery. Oh, I've never killed someone. Yes, you may be outwardly pure, But God looks upon the heart. God wants holiness and purity from his people. That is what he demands because he is holy in and of himself. He is pure and righteous in his character. And if you look upon a woman lustfully, desiring her, if you look upon anything or anyone that God says, no, that's not for you, That's not my design for you. You're trying to overstep the boundaries and the guardrails that I have established for your good 
and for my glory, then you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. God cares about your heart. This is the danger within. Watch your heart. Be careful with your heart. Notice also in verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. And look at what David learns about her. He learns three things. First, her name, that she's Bathsheba. She is a person, a real person. She is the daughter of Eliam. And we know later in 2 Samuel that Eliam was uh, one of the families that was loyal to David. This is a family that had trusted in David, who had been on David's side. And this is this man's daughter. She belongs to a particular family. And then third, that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. She is pre-committed and therefore out of bounds for David. He knows all of that. It is plainly on the table for him to see. And yet his heart is so corrupted that he overlooks all of that. He objectifies her. She's a real person. And yet he sees her as something to enjoy, to take. She belongs to a real family. And he's about to humiliate her in the eyes of her family. She has a husband who is fighting on the battlefield for King David. Never mind that. Never mind that. His heart wants her. She looks good to him. So he goes for it. He goes for it. And again, if you're looking at David, we should feel disappointed. We say, David, no, don't do it. Don't do it. This is foolish. How could you possibly do this after all that God has done for you? Stop. Just look the other way. We should be disappointed in him. And a a hero like David. And yet, the story is not told for us to just be disappointed and think, oh, tisk tisk, David. (laughs) Just another man falling prey to his lust. Just another scandal. Just another politician who has fallen prey to this. No. See yourself in David. One of the remarkable qualities of the scriptures as given to us by the Holy Spirit of God is that even someone like David, who otherwise is such a hero inside of the scriptures, it's hard to to beat David when you compare him to other biblical figures. And yet, he is not whitewashed. It is presented just like it is, warts and all, Why? Because, for one thing, it's true. But for another thing, that this is for your instruction. We are to learn. We are to fear God. We are to avoid this danger, starting by looking at our own hearts. But he doesn't. He doesn't avert his eyes. He doesn't look away. Look at verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Notice how brief, how terse this account is. There's no dwelling on it. David sent for her. He took her. She came. And he lay with her. He slept with her. No delving into the juicy details. He just did it. It looked good. She looked good to him. So he went for it. And we think, how could he possibly do this? How could he fall prey to this temptation? David, come on! Well, in these verses, we see the delusion of self-control. The delusion of self-control. We like to think that we are in control. We've got this. We've got this. We are mature. We have learned. We are astute. We are wise. We have self-control. And if you demonstrate a lack of self-control, well, just get it together, man. Come on. And we're delusional. We're delusional. We are just as subject to doing this as David. In fact, we are guilty, just as guilty before a holy and righteous God as David was. And while we're not told what part Bathsheba plays in this, did she encourage any of this? Was she complicit in this in any way? We're not told because the focus is on David. And certainly we have to acknowledge the power differential between them. David is a king. She is a woman in a patriarchal society. She has very few rights, very little leverage in this situation. We have to acknowledge that. But the emphasis is on David. David did this. David knew better. How could he not exercise more self-control? Well, anytime this happens in the headlines, and it happens today, whether it's a pastor, a politician, you name it, someone who falls into scandal. Well, we immediately start trying to find an excuse somewhere. And if you're the one who's guilty of this, you try to find an excuse for yourself. You try to justify this somehow. Well, maybe David was having a a midlife crisis, right? He just couldn't help it. Maybe he was just so stressed out. You know, he's been fighting all these wars. He's tired. He couldn't help it. It was just a lapse of judgment. Just a lapse of judgment. But otherwise, he's good to go. There must be some excuse, right? Wrong! Wrong! He is responsible and he is guilty for this. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. The fact is, we fancy ourselves as fully in control of our lives. And the reality is, we're not. You're not, I'm not. Don't sit in judgment over David. See yourself in him. See how you can also think these delusional thoughts. And in view of those delusional thoughts, 
May our prayer be what David prayed in Psalm 141. He says, I call to you, Lord, come quickly to me. Hear me when I call to you. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil so that I take part in wicked deeds along with those who are evildoers. Do not let me eat their delicacies. He knows how to pray. He knows what is good. He knows what is right. God, set a guard over my mouth. Do not let my heart be drawn to what is evil. And yet, it happens. But we know that God wants purity inside and out. And so we keep praying this. God, protect our hearts. God, protect my mind. God, help me. I cannot do this without you because apart from you, I am just as susceptible as David. I'm no better than he is. Realize the danger within Realize the delusion of self-control. It will always prove elusive to your life. Now, you may wonder, why are we told in verse 4 that she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness? What's that about? That's probably not recorded in most children's Bible versions of this story, right? Well, What we need to understand is that during this time, God had taught his people about the distinction between what is holy and what is not holy. And while we don't have the same criteria for evaluating those those qualities or characteristics, it was very important for God's people then. And any kind of bodily discharge made you ceremonially unclean, unfit to come before God. God's manifest presence among his people. Not morally unclean, that's not the point, but ceremonially unclean. And again, this is God's way of teaching his people then what it means to be holy versus unholy. And so apparently, it's been that time of the month for Bathsheba, and she's bathing. She's pursuing holiness. That's one thing to see about her. She's pursuing holiness when David is pursuing wickedness. But there's also another reason we're told that. The reason we're told that is because this is after her menstrual cycle, so that there's no need for a paternity test here. David is the father. When she says, I am pregnant, the only word she utters in this chapter, I am pregnant, she's saying, this is your baby. We know that. We know that. David knows that. So what does he do? Let's take a look at verses 6 to 13. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents 
and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. What we see in these verses is the bondage of selfish desires. The bondage of selfish desires. David thinks, delusionally, that he's free to cover up his crime, to cover up what he's done. Bathsheba's pregnant, okay. David, ever resourceful, he's proven himself to be resourceful time and time again in 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel. He has a plan. He has a plan. But ultimately, we know you can't hide this. Come on, David. He's really in bondage to his own selfish desires, to what is in his own best interest. And he thinks that what is in his own best interest is to cover this up, to not come clean, either before God or Uriah or anyone. He thinks that he doesn't need to repent of this, that he can somehow delete his history here and, and, and smooth it over. There's nothing to see here, nothing to see here. And you and I are subject to the same delusional thinking. We are in just as much bondage to our selfish desires as David was. Can you acknowledge that? Can you confess that? I am not free. I am not in control. I am not in control. You are not in control. So what does David do? Well, the first plan is to get Uriah off the battlefield. So he sends for him. And initially he makes some small talk. He tries to make this seem as normal as possible. Nothing, nothing fishy going on here. Uriah, I just wanted to see, how are things going at the front? Okay, mm-hmm. How's Joab? Mm-hmm, yep. How's the war going? Oh, you know what you should do? You should go home. You've earned it. You should go home, get your feet washed. You've, you've had a long journey. It's about 40 miles from Rabbah to Jerusalem. You go home, enjoy the hospitality and the comfort and the leisure of your own house. All right, you're right. You've earned it. You've earned it. Just go home. And of course, what David is hoping is that he will go home, that he will sleep with Bathsheba. And then, oh, lo and behold, this is now Uriah's baby, or so it seems. But Uriah doesn't fall for it. He does go home, but he sleeps on the porch. He won't go in. To David's chagrin. And David pleads with him, look, man, haven't you just come off the battlefield? Enjoy being home. Go enjoy your wife. I, do I have to spell it out for you? Come on. And what does Uriah say to David? Look at verse 11. He says, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. What is the ark? The ark is the ark of the covenant. This golden box that God had provided for his people to symbolize his presence with them. But here's the important part. What did that box contain? Well, one of the important things it contained 
were these ten laws, ten commandments written on stone. What did they say? Well, one in particular said, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20 verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And probably unwittingly, Uriah is putting that before David. Whether David realizes the irony or not, that while Uriah is on the battlefield fighting for God, fighting for God's covenant people, all in the name of David, David is back at home breaking the covenant. Breaking the covenant. Thinking that somehow he knows better than God just because something looks good to him that he can take it as king. Thinking that he can outsmart God, that he can cover all this up. And yet here's this subtle reminder. Oh no, you cannot outsmart God. You cannot evade God forever. You can run, but you cannot hide from God. And after one last attempt, David finally concludes that he cannot compromise Uriah. Uriah says, how can I possibly do this when my soldiers are out on the battlefield? How can I enjoy this indulgence without them? No, I'm too loyal. I won't do it. And so David's cover-up here fails. But what we need to remember about this example is that David is trying to suppress the truth. He's doing what we all do as fallen, sinful human beings. We try to suppress the truth, the truth about ourselves, the truth about the world, the truth about God. We try to suppress the truth. It should be obvious. God has made it plain to people who he is and how he provides for us. And yet we suppress the truth. And God had made it abundantly, abundantly clear for David how he had provided for him, what he had called him to do. And David ignored it. He suppressed the truth. He thought he could cover it up. And I don't know you and your personal life, your private life, and the things you think, the things that you say, that you don't want anybody else to know or to think about. But I have the diagnosis of God's word on my heart, and it's the same diagnosis in your life, that our hearts are sick with sin. They are sick with sin. All of what we see in David, these are all symptoms. The lying, the trying to hide the sexual immorality, the adultery, all of that, those are symptoms. Those aren't the root problems. The root problem is sin in his heart, and it's in your heart, and it's in my heart, and we are lost. We are lost apart from divine intervention, and praise be to God. He has provided that intervention. As we read in Romans chapter 7, See if this isn't true of you. Romans 7, verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. 
What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then continuing into Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. David's story is your story and my story. We are just as guilty. We are just as needy, just as helpless before a holy and righteous God. No, you may not have committed his particular transgression, but you are just as guilty Can you confess that? Can you acknowledge that? Because if you can, then this is the good news for you. The law cannot set you free. The law says do not commit adultery. The law says if you look upon a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And we can try to strive for that, but we don't have the self-control. We are delusional in our thinking. We are in bondage to our own selfish desires. We deceive ourselves We deceive others. We're all hypocrites. But praise be to God who delivers us. Because he sent his very own son to die, to make atonement, to shed his blood, his precious blood for sinners like you and like me. And not only that, he has now poured out the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God into your heart. And he, and only he, can set you free from the delusions, from the bondage, from the lies. Do you know him? Have you received the gift? It's available right now. All you have to do is repent of your sin. Say, God, I don't want that to be the end of my story. I repent of my sin. I receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, fill me by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we're told that one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit has been at work in a heart or life is self-control. No, you can't do it. No, you don't have it in you. But by the power of God in you, you can. Have you received it? It's available. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Receive him now, today, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, forgive us for treating this familiar story as just a moralistic tale. Forgive us for trying to sit in judgment over David, for thinking that we would never possibly, we could never possibly do what he did. Lord, by the power of your Spirit working in us, disabuse us of those lies. Help us to acknowledge Help us to confess. Help us to be transparent before you because we know we can't hide from you. Help us to acknowledge that you are God and that we are sinners and that there is no way for us to know you, to be in relationship with you apart from what you have done for us and sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us and now giving us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to move in us, to help us, to guide us, to transform us into the image of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, we would look to you, not to our own 
abilities, not to our own self-control. We are helpless. We are totally dependent on you, Lord. We confess that. And now I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us, that you'd guide us, that you'd direct us today and into eternity until Jesus comes back. For we pray all these things in his holy and precious name. Amen. So glad that you could join us today. I pray that this has been a blessing and an encouragement for you and your family. If you have any questions or ministry needs, be sure to reach out by email. Have a wonderful week.